Um, so Galatians chapter 5, this is, I love this part of Galatians. Um, I love this part of the Bible, um, the New Testament. Our, our city group this year went through a study on Galatians 5 and, and really focusing on the fruit of the Spirit uh, in Galatians chapter 5. To me, this is Paul's thesis on what a Christ follower looks like, what it looks like to be someone who follows Jesus. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard someone say, live a Spirit-filled life or walk in the Spirit. And I, I thought as a kid and, and even as I got into adulthood, when someone would say that, I really didn't have any idea what they were talking about. Um, it seemed to be a foreign concept. And I think to some degree in the church, uh, and maybe this is just a problem in the American church. I, I haven't spent any time at all in churches in, in other countries. But in the American church, and I think even it's become recognized by certain authors and teachers and those kind of things, is that we have put the Holy Spirit kind of on the sideline uh, of our lives in the American church and maybe in our personal lives we, we trust Christ, and there's a buildup around asking Jesus to be our Savior. And then we don't spend a lot of time, typically, thinking about how do we then live a life that's guided by the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. And I think that we, we as a church, we've got to make sure that, that we live there, that we teach that, that we spend time thinking about what that looks like in our lives, because that's the truth. Jesus said specifically, I, I go now to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to leave my Holy Spirit with you so that you can have power and that you can have guidance and all of these things that I can provide for you and and help you to live this life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so we want to make sure that we do that. We want to make sure that we teach that, and we want to make sure that, that we look that way. So unfortunately, the definition of what it means to walk in the Spirit or be led by the Spirit typically comes out to be some combination of trust your gut, uh, fortune-telling, and blind darts. I mean, really. And most of the time, and and I I, want to be fair with this, but a lot of the times in, in my young life when someone would do something and you'd go, huh? They'd go, well, I'm just being led by the Spirit. And so I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm being led by the Spirit. And you're like, yeah, but see, I looked in the Bible, and that's like not in there. Because we use that sometimes as, as an excuse. We use that sometimes as a justification maybe for actions that we take. But it's not, being led by the Spirit is not some mystical combination of things that makes you go in the right direction. That, that's not what it is at all. Uh, and it's not something that's reserved for super cool Christians who have the right combination. Um, it's not something that's reserved for uh, people who may be over here and they, they are spirit-filled and they, they've got the right mix. And then you, you over here, don't, you can't be spirit-filled because you, you don't have the right mix. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit does work differently for all of us. And there are sp- gifts of the Spirit that I frankly don't understand. And I hope one day I will. I believe that one day I will when I'm in glory with Jesus. I don't know if I'll ever understand him in this life, but that's because they're gifts of the Spirit, and so I have to trust the Lord with those things. But that's not something that's just reserved for people who, who have the right combo. Today we want to look at what God says about living a Spirit-filled life so that we can be people who are Spirit-filled. We can be a church 
that is led by the Holy Spirit, a church that accesses the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because that's where God does his work. So three questions this morning. What is it, what is it to live a Spirit-filled life? Why is it so important? And then really, how do we do it? How do we do it? What is it? Why is it so important? And how do we do it? First of all, what is walking in the Spirit? I know that sounds mystical. Walking in the Spirit. It's not a Scooby-Doo episode. Being led by the Spirit is walking in the Spirit. It means being led by the Holy Spirit. Following the Holy Spirit's lead in your life. Starting with the Word of God and then transferring that over to your actions. Okay? It's not out there in the ether. So you, you don't need to go get a book that says finding God's will. We don't have to found it, find it. It's found. It's in the Bible. All right, so God's will is in the Bible. We want to be led in that direction. Look at verses 16 and verses 25 of what Pablo just read. So verse 16 says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That seems pretty straightforward. That's a very linear equation. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. It doesn't say, don't do what your sinful nature craves, and then the Holy Spirit will guide you. We get it backwards all the time, and we teach it backwards. Frankly, frankly, I've been guilty of teaching it backwards, right? Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Then you won't do this stuff over here. Make sense? Look at verse 25. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Since we are living by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit lives in me, let us follow his leading in every part of our lives. Now, when Paul says, led by the Spirit, he ain't talking about the pace car in a NASCAR race. The white car is the pace car. For those of you who don't know about NASCAR, Sean, there's my sports reference for the day. Pace car is the white car in front. That car leads the cars out for the first lap of a NASCAR race. Okay, if it's a 500-mile race, that's the first lap of a 500-mile race. That's the pace car. None of these cars are following the lead of the pace car. All the pace car is doing is keeping everybody in line until he moves out the way, and then they go do whatever they want to do. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says being led by the Spirit. Every person in line behind this pace car is trying to be where the pace car is by the end of the race. And that's us. We're all jockeying to be in the lead by the end of the race. Paul says, let the Holy Spirit lead. It looks more like this image. The Holy Spirit is that big CSX diesel-powered engine at the front of that train. And we're the cars. See, what happens when I let the Holy Spirit lead is... The train goes down the track, and I get to follow right in behind it, and I'm on the right track the whole time. And the power of the engine pulls me down the track. Not one of those cars has its own engine. Not one of those cars has its own means of being pushed down the track. It is led by the engine. That's what Paul means when he says being led 
by the Spirit. The second thing that walking in the Spirit is, is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So it's being led by the Spirit, and then it's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit are these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. There are nine things that Paul says evidences the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Many of you have heard these verses. Guys, this is not a list of virtues. This is not a list of things to aspire to. Okay? What Paul is saying is he's presenting this and he's saying, if this evidence exists, then you are more likely than not walking in the Spirit. If this evidence does not exist, you probably are not walking in the Spirit. Does that make sense? It's not a checklist. Notice he says there's no law against these things. These things flow from the Spirit. They flow from being led by the Spirit. Therefore, they are not bound by the law. They're not a law in and of themselves. One of the major objections to Christianity is there's all these rules you have to follow. That's because we've turned things that are to be Spirit-led into laws and rules to follow And so when we present those to a world that doesn't know Jesus, it just looks like a bunch of regulations. We look like the Internal Revenue Service. We got this giant code book, and they're like, I'm not sure I can follow all this. I just use TurboTax, and I have no idea whether or not I'm following the tax code. And we make Christianity into that. As opposed to what Paul is saying here, he's not pushing us to modify our behavior to be better people. The Bible does not exist to make you a better person. Jesus says nobody's good but God, period. There is no teaching after that that says, but I can show you how to be better like God. Nope, it's not there. It's not there. We can't be good. Self-improvement is the fruit of moralism, ego, and effort. It's living under the law. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. I have pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I used to be a jerk, but now I'm not. Why are you not a jerk? Because I started being nice to people. Why'd you start being nice to people? Because I was tired of being a jerk. Or somebody said I shouldn't be a jerk anymore. Or I got married and my wife is a sweet person and she made me not be a jerk. That's self-improvement. That's moralism. That's ego. So you can go around and tell everybody, well, look, I used to be over here drink, smoking and, and, and doing drugs, and then I quit doing that, and I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm drug-free. Why? Because I wanted to be a better person. Great. That and a quarter gets you really nothing nowadays. What does what a quarter buy? Nothing. Like literally Nothing. I know that sounds harsh. I know that sounds a little harsh. It's going to get more encouraging, but here's here's the thing. You have to quit trying to do it. You have to quit trying to be better. There is no benefit in the effort. We were at an event last night, Shrimp and Grits Festival. It was awesome. If you can participate in next year, uh, you should do that. Um, Sean and I ate way too much shrimp and grits. Um, But it was really good. It was really good. 
there was a gentleman who walked around the whole time. He looked really sour. He had on a t-shirt that said, atheists helping the homeless. It was all I could stand, and mostly because Jamie and my mother and Jenny were there, and they would have all been mortified had I done this. It was all I could stand out to go over to him and go, hey, why do y'all help the homeless? Like, what is the point of you helping the homeless if there's nothing after this life? What value does the homeless have if they are just carbon-based life forms floating around in the accidental ether and have no more value than the cat I have at the house? Why do you help the homeless? Guys, that's self-improvement. That's being a better person. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit in your life. And I can tell you right now, you may look like a good person to the outside world. You may look like a good person to all of us in here. But if you are not being led by the Spirit, you missed it. Totally missed it. It ain't about being good. It ain't about making lists. It's not about saying, well, I was really good this week. Look at these five things I did. And then you're over here. I've got two things in my life that have absolutely no relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I ignore those because I'm being a better person. That's not what Paul is teaching here. He's saying in order to produce this kind of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, we have to be attached to the fruit vine. Y'all should come out to my house, man. I got blueberries and blackberries everywhere. I don't know if it was the combination of the weather over the winter or when spring actually. We actually had a spring this year, and maybe that's what did it. We didn't jump straight from winter to summer. So there was that little bit of a lead up in cooler weather. I got blackberries and blueberries everywhere. I literally stood out of the blackberry vine yesterday, and I was just, it was so good, so good. That blackberry vine produces blackberries because it's a blackberry vine. There are no bad berries on that vine. They're all blackberries. What Paul is saying is to produce blackberries, you got to be attached to the blackberry vine. And he gets that from Jesus in John chapter 15. John chapter 15 verses 4 and 5, Jesus says directly, Remain in me. Stay with me. Be attached to me. And I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. How many of you guys garden? How many of you guys kill stuff when you garden? When you cut something off the vine, does it bloom? If you don't put it in water and root it or do something with it to keep it alive, it never blooms again. It never produces fruit. Jesus says, you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. You can't do this stuff. You'll keep it up for a little while, but it's going to be too much for you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus' own words, Paul is pulling that into his teaching here in Galatians chapter 5. He's saying, you have to to go to the source. You have to be attached to the vine of Jesus, attached to the vine of Holy Spirit, and when you do, you'll produce the fruit that they produce. What kind of fruit does Jesus produce? He's holy and perfect and righteous. He is love. He is joy. He is peace. 
He is patience. He's not, he doesn't show those things. He is those things. Nobody has to call God in the morning and go, God, remember, be nice to your people today. Hey, God, remember to have joy today. He is those things. And so when we're attached to him, when we dwell in him, when we live in him, when we spend time in his word, those are the kinds of things we produce. Christianity is a root-up religion. It is not floating around there and doing your own thing and hoping to find transcendence somewhere or hoping to find God in the weeds. It is from the root up. It is literally attaching yourself to the vine and holding on because that's where the fruit is. If I had Twitter or Instagram or something that I don't do, somebody would probably hashtag this. Roots up. Hashtag roots up. But that's what we are. We are a root-up religion. No root, no plant. Real simple. And yes, we can get a pretty good idea of where we are spiritually by observing the fruit our lives produce. You'll hear Christians and non-Christians say, don't judge me. That ain't what the Bible says. I can absolutely judge you. What the Bible says is, don't judge me unless you're willing to be judged by the same standard. So if I'm looking at your life and I'm saying, do I see the fruit of the Spirit? I also want to invite you to look at my life and see if you see the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm asking you to do that right now and continuing for as long as you know me. Please, my brothers and sisters in Christ, look at my life and observe whether or not I am exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and hold me accountable to that. And I want to be able to hold you accountable to that because we can get a good idea of where we are in terms of spending time with the Lord and spending time in his word and being attached to the vine if we exhibit these things. If we're producing poisonous berries, there's a pretty good chance we're not attached to the blackberry bush. Would you agree with that? It seems to be very straightforward. Sometimes we don't live by the Spirit because we don't want to let the Spirit do the work. We've talked about, this has been a a, a theme that is weaved all the way through Galatians. As we've started from week one and now we're at week eight, this theme weaves all the way through that, which is we don't want to let the Spirit do the work. We want to do the work because we want to have something we can put on a plaque. We want to have a t-shirt. I did the work. Look at how great my work was. That's what we want because that's what our, our, our internal person, our sinful nature, this thing that's unredeemed, that's what that thing craves. Paul says it in here very clearly as Pablo read just a minute ago. Look at this bicycle power generator. Throw that up there. That lady looks fit. She is riding a bicycle that is connected to a power generator. And she can power these electronic items in her house. I've actually seen these. They actually have the TV monitor up on the screen. Some gyms have them. They have the TV monitor up on the screen, and the the bicycle that the person's riding is actually powering what they can watch on TV. It's cool. They stop pedaling, TV goes off. Seems like some really cool incentive. I could think of some other things I would like to attach that bike to that might incentivize people otherwise. Anyway. This human-powered bicycle power generator generates 400 watts of power. 
And that's basically enough to power a couple of electronic items. The last couple of days, my family and I were camping down at Lake Strom Thurmond on the Georgia-South Carolina border. So Lake Strom Thurmond was... I don't know what that was. Um, Lake Strom Thurmond was dammed was created when the Savannah River was dammed up, all right? So there's a hydroelectric plant at Lake Strom Thurmond on the Savannah River. Part of that lake is in Georgia. Part of that lake is in South Carolina. We had a blast down there. We even got to go over. We rode over the dam to check it out. It's very impressive. It's wider than Lake Murray, not quite as high uh, from the top of the dam to the river bottom below, but it's, it's, it's impressive nonetheless. Hydroelectric power. Our little bicycle generates 400 watts. This dam generates 380 megawatts. Does anybody know how many watts, high school students, in a megawatt? Anybody? Megawatts. Zoltan, how many watts in a megawatt? That's, that's a kilowatt. A million. 380 million watts just by water flowing over the dam. No humans sitting up there riding bicycles. Water just flowing over the dam, letting the water do the work. The Bible says that my God is a mighty river. All I have to do is let him do the work. And I'm over here generating my 400 watts. And I got 380 million watts sitting over here And all I got to do is walk over and plug it in. This brings us to question number two. Why is it so important to be led by the Spirit? Paul says it's because the Spirit gives us the ability to live the life that's pleasing to God. Without that, we don't have the ability to live a life that's pleasing to God. He says this in verses 16 and 17, and in verses 23 and 20, 22 and 23 when he's talking about what the fruit of the Spirit is. In verse 16, he says, let the Holy Spirit do the work. Let him guide your lives. Then you won't be doing the stuff your sinful nature craves. The Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Again, this is clear teaching. The Bible doesn't say that the Spirit gives you what you desire. It says it changes your desires. So you want what God wants. And when you want what God wants, when you get it, you're satisfied. When you want what you want and God gives you what he wants, you're not satisfied because you wanted what you wanted. Paul recognizes that fight. But then he says in verse 22, the Holy Spirit produces this fruit. He gives you the ability to show these things, this love, this joy, this peace, this patience, He does this work for you. The second reason it's so important is because the Spirit goes to war for us. He fights for us. I don't have to fight my inner person, this sinful being. I do not have to fight him on my own. He is strong. He is stronger than my will. I don't have to fight him on my own. The Spirit does that for me. Again, in verse 17, these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. 
What he's saying here is the best intentioned people fail over and over and over again because they yield to their flesh and not to the Spirit. And it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. You may have the best intentions in the world. Many people do. The quote about people are generally good is wrong. What's correct is people generally have good intentions. They generally have good intentions, but those fail because they're not led by the Spirit. We can even dress something up and make it look really pretty. It's the lipstick on a pig concept. We can dress something up and make it look really pretty with our good intentions, but at its heart, it's still garbage. Right? And I can say all the right things, and I can do what seems to the world to be all the right things, but if it's not filled with the Spirit, it's garbage. I can put whatever label I want on it, and it doesn't work if it's not filled with the Spirit. The Spirit fights for us. He goes to war for us against our nature, but we have to let Him do the fight. Again, we want to run out to the front lines with our pop gun, and, you know, the enemy's standing over there with a whole arsenal. And I've got a pop gun. Take that. The Holy Spirit wants to fight those fights. Jesus died so he could fight that fight. He fought that fight on the cross. He fought that fight when he, when he rose again. He did it for you. We just have to let him lead. The third reason it's so important is because the Spirit destroys our sinful nature. Utterly destroys it. It's like dragon slaying. Paul calls this the flesh in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. What Paul is saying, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is that we just continue to drag those things around with us. And he said, Jesus already put those on the cross and and killed them for you. They're dead. We, We treat them as if they're alive. It's like weekend at Bernie's. That dude is dead. And we're just dragging him around and we got a hat and sunglasses on him and we keep propping him up in places for our benefit. Because we don't think we can get rid of Bernie. And we talk about how cool Bernie is and how much we owe Bernie. And we just drag it around. We just drag it around. Walking in the Spirit is critical because it means we've put our old self to death. That old fruit tree that bears awful fruit, we cut it down and threw it in the fire. And we're over there like trying to grab it, gr- grab it back out of the fire. I mean, that's, that's what God sees when he looks at us. He says, I've redeemed you for all this over here. Look at all these beautiful trees. Driving down there this week, we went through peach orchard after peach orchard after peach orchard. By the way, South Carolina is the largest producer of peaches in the world, not Georgia. Just want to get that out. South Carolina. Peach orchard after peach orchard after, and you're just beautiful trees and these beautiful new peaches on them that aren't quite ripe yet. If they would have been, we'd have stopped. Not quite ripe yet. But just peaches everywhere. And we're over here in the fire with the burning peach stub trying to grab it out. That's how silly we look to God when we try to do this on our own. So how do we be led by the Spirit? How do we stop making excuses How do we stop trying to justify 
this behavior that's clearly against God's word. It's clearly not what God wants. And yet we continue to justify it and do it in our own power. How do we not do that? How do we be led by the Spirit? We have to put our faith and trust completely in the Lord and not in ourselves and not in anyone else. One of the biggest objections I get in mentoring, in trying to share the gospel is, so and so hurt me, therefore I can't do what God wants. In fact, you'll find that most people that say they don't believe in God or have some kind of agnostic behavior, if you will, if you will just go a couple of steps into their past, you will find that they were hurt terribly by a human in some circumstance, whether it was a parent or a friend or a spouse or a some loved one, someone hurt them deeply and they can't imagine that a God would allow that kind of hurt to occur in their lives. And so they won't put their faith and trust completely in that God. They want to continue to reserve that faith and trust in themselves or maybe in other people. And maybe they've come across another person who won't hurt them. And so I I have this person here and this person won't hurt me. So I'm going to put my faith and trust in this person instead of putting my faith and trust in God. People are going to fail you. They can't be perfect. We've just been through that. This isn't about putting your faith and trust in people. It's not about even building them up. It's about putting your faith and trust completely in the Lord. Quick review of what we've talked about for the last several weeks will prove it, I promise you. Galatians 3.23 says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. So what he's saying is we had to try to keep the law before Christ and before we could have faith, we had to try to keep the law. And we couldn't do it. We were kept in protective custody until the way of faith was revealed. Somebody had to watch me. I had a police escort at all times watching my every little move because there was no ability to have faith in Christ. Faith is the key word here. Galatians 5, 5 and 6. He says, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness that God had promised us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus. There is no benefit of being circumcised or uncircumcised, meaning there's no benefit of keeping the law or not keeping the law once I've put my faith in Christ. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Notice that love doesn't come first in that equation. He says you express your faith in Christ and then love is the result, right? Love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So he's saying true love this, this love, we, may, we, may, we throw this word around all the time, this love, 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 love. True love, the love, the love that God is, the love that Jesus died for, that love is born of the Spirit through faith in Him alone. You do not love something the way God wants you to love it unless you love it in the Spirit. And the way you love something in the Spirit is to be attached to the root and to flow through what God is doing and what God wants and what He desires. Otherwise, what you say as love is really just deep affection. I like you a whole heck of a lot. But it's not love unless it's born of the Spirit. It can't be born of the Spirit unless it's in line with God's Word. Does that make sense? Unless it's in line with God's Word, it cannot be love. It just, it's just a whole lot of like. 
Love is what Paul says is the greatest of all. In Corinthians, he says there are faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest. How do I get to love? Through faith. I have to put everything, all of my faith, all of my trust, all of my actions, everything on God and rest it on him and trust him with it completely. That's how I walk in spirit. Galatians 3, 5, and this is it. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? No. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Wonderful story this morning about the Lord orchestrating through the law his will to make something happen that humans couldn't make happen. That's what God does. But he does that because we put our faith and trust in Christ and not in ourselves and not in another human and not in wealth or health or any of these things that we tend to trust in. We put our faith and our trust entirely in God and say, I want you to lead me, and therefore, I will do the things that I know you desire. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have to find our greatest joy and happiness in him. Our greatest joy and happiness in Christ. That's how we're led by the Spirit. This can't be a thing we do. It's a Christianity thing. It can't be a thing we do. It has to be a thing we are. Because we find our greatest joy and happiness in it. It's summertime. I mean, there may be 10 people here one week. don't really matter. But a lot of times that's because we find our greatest joy and happiness in something other than God. And this is not the place we fight to get back to. Is this the place you fight to get back to, or are you fighting to get to the beach? Are you fighting to get back to your family, or are you fighting to get back to God? Are you fighting to get back to work, or are you fighting to get back to God? Do you find your greatest joy and happiness on Monday morning or on Sunday morning? Do you find your greatest joy and happiness on Friday night or on Sunday morning? Or in your quiet time, or in your Bible reading, or when you're loving somebody with the love of the Lord? when you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Or is this a distraction for you? Is this just something that, that you do to make you a better person? That's where it really is. We seek satisfaction in literally everything else, and then we don't understand why God doesn't work in our lives. Again, it, it seems a little silly. I'm trying to find all my satisfaction, my peace, and my joy, my hope over here in things that are temporal and will fade, and that's all over here waiting for me in the Lord. But I won't do it because I find my greatest joy and happiness over here. George Mueller was a Christian evangelist in the 1800s. He died in 1898. He was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. Over the course of his life, he cared for 10,024 orphans under his direct care, 10,024 orphans. Put a quote up from him. He said this in his autobiography. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord 
or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Now, what is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. What Mueller is saying is, don't look at all this stuff I did for orphans. That's what better people do. That was not my purpose. What I did for orphans flowed out of what God was doing in me as I spent more and more time with him and in his word and being led by his word and being led by the spirit. And in my, that leading led me, it led my feet to children without families. It led my feet to build orphanages. It led my feet to teach the word of God throughout England. That's what happened. I wasn't trying to be a better person. I wasn't trying to be someone that was honored because he built orphanages and ministered to over 10,000 kids. I want to be happy in the Lord. And when I'm happy in the Lord, I'll be led by his spirit. And when I'm led by his spirit, when you look at me, you will see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Love is the love of Christ. It is an unconditional love. Joy, it's, it's, it's the, the hope that I have. It's the, the gladness that I have despite my circumstances. We sang about it this morning. I will lift you up in the lowest valley. That is joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Peace being calm, being at peace, knowing that my future is secure, knowing that I have nothing to worry about in this life, that comes from being led by the Spirit. Patience. Are you patient? Can you wait? Same song, patience. Can you wait? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness. The Bible says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. This is the kind of kindness that goes above and beyond just being nice to people. This is kindness that moves its feet. This is compassion. The reason that God's kindness is compassion is because it sent Jesus all the way to the cross. Is that your kindness? It ain't just saying thank you and please. It's compassion. It's, it moves your feet. Gentleness. Do I exercise the strength that I have with reservation? Do I exercise the strength that I have in a way so that I can fix the problem without injuring? That's what gentleness is. It's not being soft. It's not being soft. Think of gentleness as removing a splinter. To get a splinter out of that finger, I gotta do some harm. If you don't believe me, just ask Will, and he'll tell you that he would rather me not take the splinter out because it's gonna hurt about as bad as the splinter going in, but then it's gone, right? And so gentleness is doing what's necessary to get that splinter out and no more. I always use the image of my dad taking a fish hook out of our dog's mouth. It has to come out, you know, and it's either get her to the vet and spend a whole bunch of money on the vet that we didn't have or sit on her on the edge of the pond and take the needle nose pliers out of the tackle box. Yeep! Right? But that's, the hook's got to come out. That's gentleness, faithfulness faithfulness, being true to God first, true to his work, true to his kingdom, true to his worship, and being true and faithful to others, being a person of your word. Your word must be your bond. That is faithfulness. I do what I say. 
None of the flowery language in the world, and every woman in this room will tell you this, none of the flowery language in the world matters if the actions don't follow. Faithfulness means that actions follow words. I say this, I do this, they match. Self-control. Self-control. Do I allow myself to be controlled by the Spirit? Or do I do it on my own? Is that us? It can be. It should be. God wants it to be. He died for that. All we have to do is decide, I want to be led in the way God wants to lead and not in the way that I want to lead. Let's pray.